Alrighty then, it is time for the True Wealth Radio Show on this, the greatest Tuesday you have had all week. I am your host, Dave Littlejohn, joining me as pretty much always these days in yep. the studio. Matt Dixon. Matt. Yes. What do we have to share today? Well, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the markets. Of course you do. Matt loves the markets, by the way. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, but this is an interesting time. Today we saw a lot of stocks move higher. Just about at the time everyone thought that things were kind of maybe yeah. starting to fall apart. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? Well, it certainly is. It kind of goes back to this whole uh, timing the market is hard thing. Mm-hmm. It really is. It is. You know, the vast majority of people underperform the S&P 500 as an index, uh, like most mutual funds underperform it. That's, uh, by the way, not an entirely telling statistic. We could unpack that later if you want to, but it happens commonly. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people underperform the S&P 500. Um, do keep in mind there's lots and lots and lots of mutual funds that aren't trying to outperform the S&P 500, but they're included in that survey. So, yeah, that's <laughs> so true. like, wait a second, you mean to tell me I'm buying a mutual fund that like a money market mutual fund and didn't outperform the S&P? I am sh shocked. What? How did that happen? David, like, yeah, by design. Did you happen to see kind of some of the headline news articles today talking about some of the reasons behind why the market inched higher? Uh, some of them, yes. Yeah. Although, I, you know, I have today's been a day where I've had I've been in a lot of client Mm -hmm. facing meetings today. So it's been less of a heavy research day for me than some. Uh, I know that uh, a couple of the biggies out there uh, this week, we've had an, uh, a print where uh, GDP, I guess, or CPI rather, came in a little bit cooler, indicating right. that we may see- Do you want to kind of talk about what CPI is for the listeners Consumer that might- Consumer Price Index, mm -hmm. right? So this is just a, uh, a measurement that is looking at the price of a basket of goods that consumers typically buy. And so uh, seeing a smaller growth rate, yeah. suggesting that inflation is beginning to uh, wane. So right. That's one. And then another is uh, on the, and, and that would be kind of, a, I guess that's an economic piece of data. That's not a fiscal or monetary policy. It's just a right. piece of economic data. But, but month over month, I mean, this month, or well, looking back at October, I think we were down like 0.2%. Yeah. And so, the market looked at that really favorably. Yeah, it, it did, right? And we can we can talk a little bit about why. I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not the Fed can change what they're doing. I think it was uh, that little drop of optimism, right? Because everything in the news was so pessimistic, and you drop in a little bit of optimism, well, and it just colors the, the whole thing. Here's just the darnest thing that goes on in the market. Sometimes bad news is bad, and sometimes bad news is good. Right. And sometimes... Good news is good, and sometimes good news is bad. Mm -hmm. you're like, Wait, what? It's like, yep. It's some some days it's opposite day, and some days it's not. What's what I think? You know, a lot of listeners are feeling at home. They're like, inflation isn't cooling. Everything's really expensive, and it makes sense because in the inflation report, they were talking about how core inflation um, was declining, but it excluded what. Food and energy. Yeah. So it's like, well, my groceries still cost a lot and my gas is still expensive. Um, yeah. Except and if you're in Florida or some of those East Coast states, right? Like I'm hearing reports. It, we're in Oregon for the listeners that are hearing this. Gas here is expensive compared to other states. Yeah. I, I think it's all relative, right? I yeah. Mean, gas in other states is expensive compared to where it's been. Right? Sure. So 
uh, I, you know, Matt's hearing reports. Both yeah. Justin and I have done travel in the last month where we've been yeah, on the East Coast. And you guys are saying like what? I got to suffer two seventy nine a gallon. Yeah, you and know? we're over here paying close to four dollars a gallon. Right. So it's it's materially different. It was, in fact, it was still the rental car company them refilling the tank was still cheaper than Oregon gas. That's so. That's wild. Uh, there's something to be said for that, but uh, yeah, it's so the market seems to view this idea that um, inflation declining or you know, and, and really. If cons- if consumer prices are, are declining, then the, one should also ask, well, wait, are we going to have a decline in GDP, which is gross domestic product? That's mm. an actual contraction in economic output. So uh, these are recessionary data points, potentially. Right. Remember, recession being a, a number of uh, sequential quarters of negative GDP growth, right? So you get into... Um, and I forget what there's recession. There's a, a formal recession. I think is two quarters, or maybe it's six. I forget which. I it think is. it's six. It might be six where we formally declare a recession. A six mm-hmm. quarters. Yeah. In six six sequential quarters of negative GDP growth, uh, but but nevertheless, uh, indications that things are slowing down, and that's what the Fed wanted. Right. Well, and you know, you also get some people saying that the supply chains are improving that helps a lot yeah because we fought that for a really long time yeah that was a sort of a knock-on issue that came with covid Mm -hmm. so that's man it's been a long time since covid yeah three years yeah i was gonna say you know we're just now kind of mentioning maybe some improvements there that's been three years well and if you think about uh so it was i recall somewhere around november of 2019 is when the chatter started really picking up lockdowns happened in i think march of 2020 so we are now november of 2023 so it's four years since we started first hearing the the flirtatious terms right and then four months from now it would have been the four-year anniversary of lockdowns beginning yeah right uh, maybe it was February that it started, but it was first. And we all know the story, right? It was flattened. The curve became we're going to be in this for the long haul. And then we broke a lot of stuff in the process. So seeing supply chains improve is good, uh, but it's that's that's a, it's an interesting one to see where assets have repriced after lots of money printing, after lots of other jiggering of various economic components, right? First, it was super cheap money or even free money. Right, which there's no right. such thing as free money. Well, and we're starting to pay the price a little exactly. bit for that. Exactly, it was just we just relocated when we'd feel the pain. Mm-hmm. Right, further down the timeline. Uh, so now it's in many respects it's here, but but market wants to know when can rates come back down. Housing market really wants to know that. Right, when are mortgages going to c- reach back down into the more affordable range? That I I feel like that's a question that everyone out there really wants to know the answer to because it changes your lifestyle if you feel kind of structurally trapped by your mortgage. Yep. And here's the funny thing about this. Uh, my take on this, and a lot of people ask me this question, I, I don't know the answer to this one. And I think there's plenty of opinions out there. That's you know we can all conjure opinions. Right? I can conjure. And we can guess all day long. Yeah. But that's really what it is. It's an educated guess. Every analyst that gets out there is saying. Here's the data that we have that we're using to extrapolate the future. And this is what it's telling us. And so we'll just lean on that understanding and say, this is what will happen. And then we'll wait and see what happens. And if they happen to be right, we will celebrate them like they were geniuses. And if they are wrong, then we will vilify them, right? And if you have 100 people make predictions and then you happen to be right, then people will give you a bunch of credibility. I got a funny story about this. 
years ago I used to work for a bank I won't say where and the bank had a contest where like three months before the end of the year or maybe the beginning of the year they had everybody predict where they thought the 10-year Treasury yield would end up and where the S&P 500 would end up okay and I got them both very very correct like uh, the 10-year I actually called to the the second decimal point wow and got it okay right. and the S&P 500 I was within you know, like 50 points or something and so they had at the end of the contest they at the end of the year they announced to everybody and they call my name and everybody just goes well of course he would you know he's the financial guy he's supposed to know that <laughs> and it's ironic because it was a guess right I guessed I didn't how would I know the future but everybody assumed because of my your my, background my that you should just did, somehow that, know well, the future he, of course he knows right that's uh -huh. cheating right <laughs> okay it's worse because then it becomes people place even more credibility than should be there and i'm sure there was someone that came up to you and was like all right you got to tell me your secret how did you know <laughs> there there was some of that like well of course yeah it was just that as if well and then when i would give an opinion later people believed it more so one one really good get well I guess in this case two two really good guesses and then it's like well believe that right. guy he got well, it right like, once before don't tell my eight year old I'm not a ninja okay <laughs> she still <laughs> believes I'm a ninja let's just let's just go with that there you go okay so anyway uh, all that to suggest with all of this data what it gives us is indications but it does not mm -hmm. give us guarantees of outcomes no and um, yeah market seems happy. And it's funny because, oh, wait, you mean economy's getting worse, so the market's happy? Yeah, I don't get it either. Yeah. But there was another big piece in the news, I think, around politics that yeah. matters. And that is that there's a possibility that the Republican side of the ticket is going to get enough of an act together to at least get some kind of stopgap in government funding provisioned so that we're not shutting down the government at the end of the week. Hmm. The and markets it, would really appreciate not shutting things down. I think a lot of government employees would appreciate things not shutting down as you're going into the holiday season and there's everything from bills at the end of the year to um, the various you know, Christmas and other celebrations. It's an expensive holiday. We're really good at kicking the can down the road. We've done it how many times? All the times, man. Yeah, all, all of all the times. times. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway... Uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion in my illustrious career that uh, trying to handicap this market is That's, very, very difficult. Well, and it can be dangerous. Yep. It can be. So I'm, I'm less interested in trying to handicap the markets on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, like trying to time it day-to-day, -day, very difficult. Trending the market, a little, little less so. And so then it becomes what good habits can you use to – reduce risk and improve outcomes and and I think there are some well I'll tell you this you know I haven't been doing this nearly as long as you have but in the amount of time that I have been in this field of work the one thing I have noticed a lack of patience is normally the one thing that really really bites people and makes them feel a lot of pain at the end of the day like yeah. if you don't have patience uh, there's an old adage that says markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent yeah right? and so well and everyone always wants a rational 
reason for why the markets did what they did, right? We've seen that from even really, you know, we'll call them good investors. Well, why did this happen today? And it's right. like, well, what if there's not a rational reason for the or movement? what if there's more than one reason the market's doing what it does? Oh, that's right? another one. We're so, like, one-track-minded. Like, yeah. what was the reason Everybody for this? Everybody wants <laughs> to distill down the tens of thousands or more of participants making buying and selling decisions at any given moment. Do They're not using the same data points. Okay, and, yeah. And that's the other. It's like, we're not even playing the same game. If you have a really short time horizon, like, you know, fractions of a second and you're just flipping in and out of stocks try to make tiny little profits hundreds of times over that's a very different game well, than somebody that's setting this on the shelf for 20 years that can be the most dangerous game especially if the person who is acting like a trader believes that they're an investor right yeah yeah i mean i i think and this is this kind of gets more to the crux of where I was maybe taking the show. Although I'm I'm gonna lean on Matt today, who's done a lot more prep than I have. I see a lot of unforced errors mm -hmm. that occur by investors, and so here we are looking at an environment where the market's kind of tricky. Is it is it getting better, or getting worse? Mm -hmm. Right. And we came out of a time where, since August, it's kind of been trending down for the S and P. But in the last month or, or last five six weeks, it's been kind or not even that many. Last three weeks, kind of been trending higher again. Yeah, right. and so we've seen this up and down and head fakes. You know, are we in a an intermediate downtrend or in a short term uptrend, or are we in a long term uptrend with an intermediate correction, or are we in a? I'm not sure yet. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do today was pick your brain, kind of around the investor who wonders how do I really evaluate my account. Right? People want to know how am I performing, but that's kind of a a big question because compared to what. And yep. what is your goal? Like, what are you trying to do here? Because performance, is it based on what you want, what you need? Or there's so much to that question. All right. I like it. So this is the question is, what's your yardstick? Yes. So we're going to unpack more of that. But as you can tell by the music, we have to take our first obscene profit break first. So stick around. We will be right back. I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Up on News Radio 99 FM. At 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where Matt and I are walking through all the shenanigans that you investors need to know. And if you're trying to get caught up and you want to know what we're talking about, grab the podcast. Matt, where yeah. do you find us? Go to littlejohnfs, as in financialservices.com. You can shoot us an email, comment. There's lots yeah. of things you can Go do. Go to the Knowledge Center. You'll find all the podcasts there as well. So you can get those hooked up and make sure to subscribe at your favorite podcast environment and uh, you'll get the notifications when we post new stuff. Uh, you can also track this on our YouTube channel now. So we're, we're starting to push that out. Go look up Little John Financial on YouTube and you'll find these. So if you want to get more information, you can extract it there. And you can see Matt's really beautiful face. And, oh, yeah. Uh, my face for radio. <laughs> so... Uh, Matt, one of the yeah. things you want to talk to us about a little bit is uh, the concept of how do you, how one evaluate. So remember, we're talking about like how do investors navigate tricky markets, and one of the things in order to uh, gauge whether or not it's working is you got to you got to track. You got to how, how's your how are your investments working? Yeah, so you got to have talk some, a little bit about how do you do that? Yeah, like what yardstick are you using? Yeah, because I mean, uh, we'll just throw a theory out there. If I say David. I'm happy with 6%. And over the course of a year, my account goes up 6%. Then 
Effectively, you've hit your own target, so right. you're good. Yeah, but we can't always just measure performance that way, can we? Well, or maybe again, we can. I think we can. I think the answer is it depends on what you're looking for, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, and what you need. That's a bigger picture, too. Like, just because I want 6%, maybe I need more than 6% in order to meet my needs. Right, ne and, and you're kind of rolling in the idea that uh, investing typically has a purpose. Mm -hmm. okay? And it's so unique. It's so individual for well, each individual person. Certainly the way we approach it, right? Mm -hmm. If you come into our firm, one of the things we're going to look at is what are the goals for your money? Right? Yes, and, that's a big piece. Some people, the goal is more. And I will tell you, I hate that game. Mm -hmm. right? I hate the game of more because uh, it's really a what have you done for really me game. And it's a just live by the sword or die by the sword of performance. And that to me isn't the whole story of successful investing. Right. right. Successful investing is I have a target outcome. Like I'm trying to design a future lifestyle and I want to create a nest egg and I want to create passive income streams and other ways to make that future lifestyle real. And so I'm making strategic moves today to give myself the highest chance that that outcome can happen. Okay. So I have a future plan and I'm working my way backwards to build steps into place to achieve that. Now, when you're you know, 18 years old and you're getting started or 20 or whatever it is, some of the game is just start accumulating, right? So yeah, get you your a long feet time horizon, you. you can afford the risk, so you just get started. And then as you advance through the game, you start layering into place other things because the game gets more sophisticated. Now you're talking about reserve funds, you're talking about insurance, you're talking about other elements to make sure that you don't get derailed from the path. Mm -hmm. Okay, And that's all part of planning. Right, it's this risk management component of planning, but you're right in that I need to know what rate of return is required for my plan to happen. So if six percent's the benchmark, like hey, as long as you make six percent or more, then I can kind of gauge my rolling investment returns and stay above six percent. Right. Good. But if I need double that, then I better be measuring to that. If I'm just getting started and I don't know what my future goals are yet. And that's real. A lot of people that are in their 20s going, I don't know. I just know I need to save right now. So you start saving to build an estate. And then you say, well, I've got 20, 30 plus years. I can afford to take on more risk if I'm so inclined because I don't have to touch the money for a while. Okay. So now you're doing a little bit more measuring against your benchmarks and measuring against healthy ratios, right? And mm -hmm. that's like, how much risk are you taking? And are you getting paid for the risk you're taking? Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways to measure it. I think there's some ways to not measure it. Okay. What would be an example that you have where you're like, this is not a good way to measure your performance? I see some people that uh, anchor to a number, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, I came in with X number of dollars and I started investing. And as long as I'm above that number, I'm fine. <laughs> right. The, the problem is that doesn't contextually adjust much. So so what happens is you start measuring absolute returns and go, well, I had $100,000 and seven years from now I have $115,000. I'm cool because I'm still positive I made $15,000. That is true, but your internal rate of return is super low. Right. Seven years and $15,000. You're at like one point something, yeah. Yeah, you're compounding at one and a quarter, one and a mm -hmm. half percent. It's really, really low. Right. right. So you're not really getting paid. For, for the, the time for the use that of you're the money. invested, yeah. yeah. So in, in in that respect, it's like, well, if you look at it and go, well, as long as it's more than I started, I'm okay. Mm, that is an overly simplified view. It's also overly simplified to think if I lose a little bit of money in the first year that I get started, hey, you're playing a game where you're going upstairs with a yo-yo, right? <laughs> if you're in the market, 
the trend may be up, but at any given moment, the markets could be down. Your account can dip and you're not in trouble just because that occurs. It's just the snapshot in time that you're taking a measurement. Right. And I say this all day long. If you were in a house that you were planning to live in for the next 10 years and the price of it were to drop tomorrow, you're not going to freak out and decide to sell your house. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't have to sell your house for 10 more years until the kids are out and you decide to downsize. Then you're not really worried about the price today. Right. Okay. And your investments are really like that. When you're a long-term investor and you're looking at the, you want you know healthy things that you're going to own, so you don't want to be completely oblivious to it. But you don't need to measure on a moment-to-moment basis. It's not your time to sell. Somebody else's sale is determining how the market views the price in this instant. Mm-hmm. And if they have to sell and you don't, then they have to accept the price the market offers them and you don't. Right. I think one of the the mistakes I've seen some people make is also trying to figure out, you know, have I done well or have I done poorly? And they're they don't know how to benchmark anything, right? Because they maybe they have a a portfolio that's sixty percent stocks and forty percent bonds, and they say, well, I've underperformed. And then you say, well, compared to what? And they're like, well, to the market. And yeah, you're like, so, so what's the market? Yeah, exactly. That's the question. You know, what is your gauge? And if they're like, well, I looked at the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ's up 25% and I'm only up 6.5%. So how, like, how, do you, how would you advise people pick a benchmark? I, it sounds really easy, but find an index or a strategy that's really similar in, align, in an alignment to what you're doing. So maybe go look at another portfolio where the index is 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Compare it to something that's similar. Yeah, there's actually some really uh, kind of handy tools out there. Historically, uh, maybe people just used a primary index like the um, S&P 500 is mm-hmm. an index, the NASDAQ is an index. That's probably index. the one that I get yeah. the most. Like, the, well, compared to the S&P 500. Or the Dow. I yeah. still have a lot of people, they see the Dow because that's yeah, been reported for years on mm-hmm. financial channels and so you know and remember the Dow's 30 stocks and they're extrapolating that here's 30 stocks and that's a, a gauge of the entire marketplace and you're like well that's just 30 of them <laughs> right and so you've got the the, the Dow is one of them uh, but there are a lot of ways to look at this and there's a lot of big companies that have uh, packaged index blends that you can look at you can also look at how have you done looking at kind of your risk score and i know that's kind of internal speak for that's, what that's we more do. of what that's something we do for i know our investors um but that's one i think it's yeah. an efficient way sometimes to to look at things yeah let's come back to that in a second because it's really relevant uh, it's just so unique to our firm mm-hmm. uh, we're not the only firm that does this but it's pretty uh, but it is unique to our firm in a sense uh but, but before we get there talking about these benchmarks because let's say you got a 401k or something like that that you're investing in Uh, there's there are other places to go so i'm not saying this is a recommendation exclusively but i'm saying this is a place you could go look Um, you could go to a a company called morningstar right morningstar is a research firm they publish a lot of stuff and make it available for free there is some stuff that they try to upgrade and get you to pay for Um, they will give information to consumers, but they also provide research to institutions right, mm-hmm. and advisors and so forth. They make indexes, for example, for aggressive growth, moderate growth, conservative income, and they also make uh, indexes for 
things like a 60-40 stock bond mix mm-hmm. or an all-bond portfolio. So they have lots of different ways to view benchmarks. So that might be an interesting one to use is, well, what is a, the appropriate benchmark for me? If you're a conservative investor, don't go compare yourself to the S&P 500. That's not conservative. That's an all-stock index. Do you feel like this is one of the areas where a lot of advisors might try and sell you their product? Right, like where they're like, well, let me show you our performance compared to X, Y, and Z. I think there's a tremendous pressure in the industry to sell an investment story. Mm-hmm. That's historically been what's happened is that you will get a, let me tell you why our process is so credible and why you should invest in it. And so you get the story behind the mutual fund or the story behind the insurance product that says, this is what you need. And then people buy the story. I will say, I think that's one of the areas where our firm maybe might be a little bit different yeah. or unique is I, I don't think that I've ever really heard us sell the investment as much as. Yeah, we're not like, investment. We're process people. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is a, we're, we're talking about a much more holistic approach of you know, right. here's the. Here's comp- more comprehensive. So, like, if, if someone were to walk in and talk with you, what might be your approach as, as an advisor who's not just only focusing on performance? What are some of the other things that you might bring to the table and be like, here's what you really get? Okay. This question is so good, I'm going to force you to cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. man. Okay. So, we'll grab a break. When we come back, I want to I wanna address that because one of the things that our firm does that I think is cool is the way we benchmark the client before we benchmark the investment. I like where you're taking this. So let's talk about your personal benchmark and what that can mean for investors. But we gotta take a break first. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Well on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Well Radio Show where I, your host, Dave Littlejohn, expertly, amateurly, I'm navigating <laughs> the market with my main man, Matt Dixon. Yes. All right. Matt, uh-huh. first of all, we'll get your microphone right. I promise. Okay. Um, second of all, we've talked now about how the markets are kind of weird, how sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, it's hard to figure out, and what are investors to do? And then we start talking about measurement, and you started sniffing around this concept of benchmarking <laughs> i just see myself as a dog like <laughs> hounding around it like yeah, let's, let's gets, go let's go matt gets uh am i like a bloodhound it's just like I, he's gotta he's gotta get that is that answer. my spirit animal i'm like a bloodhound i catch a whiff of something and then off i think he your goes spirit running. animal is much more like a lab right oh, okay so you're like oh i got a job to do i got a job hey to do. Got i'll a job take to that do. as a compliment yes, considering that's yes, america's like second most favorite dog what's the first most favorite? golden retriever oh. well actually no i think it is lab and then second is golden retriever either remember. one is pretty awesome so. that's why i got a mix right he's half golden, golden retriever yeah he's half just golden retrieval half yeah couldn't commit so you just went for both yeah okay we're not even gonna go there well he was free so God, the price was right. he's a good dog I'm so. I'm I love a good deal. I can't I can't deny <laughs> it. Like a value investor with his pet. <laughs> I, I am. I'm a value investor at every single juncture. It might be. That's Is awesome. That... All right, so we're gonna go uh, to a, a place today that I've I've not done a lot on this show, and and the reason is we have historically treated this as an education opportunity for our listeners, 
but in this case, we are going to educate you a little bit on something that's unique to our firm. Uh, what I do want to prep you for is that I'm not making recommendations. Uh, it's in a sense like, is it an endorsement of, I hope so. We better believe in what we're doing, right? But I want you to take this information for what it's worth, uh, not trying to necessarily sell you on anything, but just explain why we believe in the process that we use, okay? Yeah. And one of the things is when it comes to benchmarking for investment performance, right? I think it's important. You better know how your investments are doing, right? So we need to figure out, uh, you know, are you or are you not making money in this process? That's pretty critical. Mm -hmm. But compared to what? Right. So we often compare our investments to other to, investments, to other investments, to mm -hmm. benchmark and see how we're doing. Right. Hey, here, how how is my race car compared to this other race car? But we don't often compare ourselves and benchmarking our willingness to take risk. Right. I think we're a lot less scientific in the approach to how much risk is tolerable as an investor. And this can I think risk tolerance can sort of be come at from from multiple angles. One of them is. What level of return do you need in order for your investment strategy to play out and work? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a like, you know, hey, I, I need X percentage of return, or my plan won't make enough money for me to get where I want to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's the planning piece. So, from a plan, if I need a certain amount of return, I have to take a certain amount of risk to make that return even possible, right? Mm -hmm. If if you're saying I only want to own bank CDs and you, you know we the last ten years you're talking two percent returns and your plan requires seven, you could do CDs and guarantee you won't get there, mm -hmm. right? You're like you're mechanically guaranteed you just won't earn enough because we can calculate that, right? So you would need to extend deeper into the risk spectrum to make the possibility arrive. This doesn't guarantee it, but it improves the probability. Right. So looking at lifestyle, how much do you need to spend every month in order to make your ship float? Okay. And, yeah. and so, and that's part of the planning process, but I'm talking about not just how much do you spend, mm -hmm. right? but how much do you need to earn in do, order so that you, you can spend that amount. So that your nest egg can get there, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, if, if you're trying to get to a million dollar nest egg so that you can have $40,000 a year of retirement income without outspending your nest egg, then and you got $200,000 now, how much do you need to save each month? And how much does that investment need to return mm -hmm. to get you to a million Right, bucks? and that's why you're saying, in that instance, the CD isn't going to... Right, so if that's yeah. not going to get it done, then what, what is? will? And, and that's going to drive the amount of risk that you have to take. And the unfortunate piece is, sometimes you have to have a brutally honest conversation and be like, you're not going to get there, right? Yes, yes. Like, that's the one thing that hopefully, you know, whoever you're using as an advisor can say, you know, if that's the case, you know, that won't work. And then you have to adjust things. Right. Now, the next is when you have a time horizon that, you know, your plan's likely to make it, right, from mm -hmm. a purely statistical basis. Yeah. And now you are making a different decision, which is what is the amount of risk that I can tolerate as an investor where I can stick with my plan. And not give up. Okay, That's different too because if you saw a negative return, would you freak out and do something stupid mm -hmm. that would blow up your returns? Right. Okay. And if I sound really heavy-handed with this, I don't care. Well, it's because you've seen it too many times. Yeah. I, I, I just don't care. Like if you are like offended that I'm saying if you freak out with your investments and do something stupid and that offends you, I'm like – 
I might be okay with that mm-hmm. because I want to jar you and get your attention, right? I want you to pay enough attention to say, wait a second, before I inflict a, a wound on myself, why don't I get a second opinion? Why don't I get somebody else that is maybe emotionally distanced enough to make more of a clinical decision with what I'm doing? Because your emotions can lead to really, really poor decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So part of what we do is we take our investors through a risk assessment process that has them look at different market conditions, markets going up, markets going down, and different circumstances saying, well, hey, would you rather participate in risk markets that give you this upside or downside compared to being in a fixed income environment? Hey, if I could get a guaranteed 8% return every year and I didn't have to take any risk, would you rather do that? Or would you rather make 25% on the upside, but you could lose 18%, mm-hmm. right? And we go back and forth and back and forth to, to, to narrow down what our investors are sort of willing to tolerate most of the time. Well, and here's the hidden little secret that's not really a secret. That number can change. Your risk profile can change. You age, life events happen, things change in your life. Not and only so that, can... we actively seek to update that number. So right? when we have customers and we engage with them over multiple years, we revisit this test because your life changes and your circumstance changes. So we'll, we'll take the test again and again and again, and you come up with a moving expectation of where your risk tolerance really is. And then you get to compare and benchmark yourself against your investments. Because what we're going to do as investment managers now is design investment strategies built to the risk you're willing to tolerate. Well, and it goes even further than that, because what if you know, we as the investment advisor look at the market and things are souring, we can also go in and adjust risk too, right? Like by the holdings that are in the pro in the um, yeah. account. And, and that's kind of our, that's part of our jam is when you're tactical in investment management, we, we do go in and adapt the strategies to the circumstances we see uh, to the best that we can, mm-hmm. right? And, and we try to keep a, a longer-term perspective in mind when we do this. Uh, when appropriate, we try to be opportunistic. We try to manage taxes along the way, all of that, because we're not traders. Right. That, that risk number isn't necessarily static. Just because yeah. you, know, you feel like you're a, you know, a growth-targeting investor, there might be a season where you need to be a little bit more moderate or maybe take a little bit more risk. It's an interesting, interesting web. Yeah, and the, 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 but still, all of this kind of hinges around the idea that every investor has sort of a, a range of risk that would typically be acceptable. Mm-hmm. What I've discovered in my career is that there are times when everything around you looks pretty terrible. Um, it's amazing how the risk tolerance drops, mm-hmm. right? And when everything looks really great, the risk tolerance expands. And sometimes it is my job to remind clients not to get greedy when everybody else is greedy. Right. And sometimes it is my job to remind people to get greedy when everybody is freaking out. That's the hard one, isn't it? It is the hard one. It took a lot of courage in early 2009 to hold your nose and buy the stock market. Mm -hmm. And yet, had you done so, you would have been rewarded handsomely over the next 12 to 18 months. Right. But in that moment, a lot of people probably thought, you're nuts. Yeah. It's funny, because I look back on those times, 
and I remember having a, some quantitative signals that said everybody out of the pool, right? It was there's just nothing mm -hmm. to buy. There was no safe port in the storm. The first category of the market that showed up as investable, mm -hmm. emerging markets, one of the highest volatility segments of the marketplace, turned around and started getting a, a bid hmm. early. And it, I mean, that year it probably returned 60% or something. That In year. the emerging markets. Emerging yeah. Markets. You could have wow. bought the, an emerging market ETF, like an emerging market index fund, and it just went bananas. Hmm. But, uh, and there's, a, there's an interesting example, too, of if we were risk benchmarking, emerging markets probably somewhere in the, you know, 80-plus risk spectrum for that position. Uh, and it would have been very hard to convince somebody to buy anything like that at the time. But that was absolutely where the money was made that year. Hmm. That's uh, interesting. All that to say, our process is not uh, trying to time the markets. No, because right. just because it, emerging markets worked good in 2009 after a real estate collapse yeah, doesn't it, mean that it hasn't the next worked real good in recent years. No, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> so and it doesn't mean that if we had another housing collapse, that it would work good a second time. Right. So. Uh, always trying to look at the context. The interesting thing about history is it may give us ideas of what happens, but it just certainly does not create a future for the markets. No. And if there's one thing I've learned is uh, while history doesn't repeat itself, it may rhyme, but it uh, still is sometimes in a different key. There you go. <laughs> so, all right, look, we're running a little long on this segment, so let's do this. Let's grab our last break here, and then when we come back, just a few more thoughts for investors on how you can properly benchmark and position yourself to navigate through tricky markets. Okay. But we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. we got True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM at 1240 KQEN. We can, we can. All hey, right. welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with... Matt Dixon. You know, we had this thought. Um, I've got a fun list. This came from the uh, CFA Institute, so Certified Financial, uh, I think... It's, it's uh, analyst is what that is. CFA mm -hmm. is actually a pretty high power credential for stock analyst analysis and um, uh, real common for money managers. Institutional money managers often have CFAs. Uh, they have this list of the 20 most common investing mistakes uh, in an infographic. And I just kind of want to go through this. You guys can go find this too, by the way. It's, it's available on Google, but this one's kind of fun. Um, so we're going to go through these real quick. And Matt, I just want to get okay. your comments. So number one, expecting too much. Uh, yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah. You want the moon and the stars, but you don't want any risk. Yeah, and I see a lot of investors coming and thinking, well, I should be able to make, um, you know, in fact, uh, they, they, on their infographic says people expect 15.6% annualized returns. Advisors think closer to 7 mm -hmm. Huge gap between the yeah, two. That's, right? that's pretty bad. Right, and so, in fact, advisor expectations, I believe, have declined over the last decade or two because uh, the sledding's been tough. Right. Next, uh, no investment goals. Yeah, how can you know where you're going if you don't know what you want? Totally agree. Not diversifying. Uh, yeah, if you're over-concentrated and that stock or fund has a really bad month, year, five-year run, well, man, it would have yeah. been nice to have something that performed well. Yep. Here's the other that I see, though, um, not under not diversifying, is you can de-worsify. Funny, th funny phrase, right? But the idea that you, you pile on a whole bunch of mutual funds and you just blend things to the point where... You're, you're just paying a bunch of fees to own everything that's basically right. just tracking the index. Right. You may as well that's R squared. just own the index. Yeah. Exactly. There, that's a, that's Google a R squared. Okay. Yep, there you go. Uh, four, focus, focusing on the short term. Yeah. If you... I mean, maybe you only have 
six months, right? Because you need the money for something. Yeah. But most of the time, we're long-term investors. It's going to be in there for multiple years. So quit looking at it yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it's really hard to say that you're investing when you are thinking less than years. Like yeah. Thinking in uh, days, weeks, or even months is seldom investing. That's typically trading in yeah. that case. So, yeah. Uh, number five, buying high and selling low. Well, let's do that. Buy. Yeah. That just <laughs> but sounds let's, like a duh. But, yeah. Um, I think it can also be that. Um, Wait, did it say buying high and selling buying low? Buying high and selling low. Oh no! Don't do that. Correct. Buy it when it's buy it when it's cheap. Yes. Be a value investor. All right. This is what, part of what causes buying high and selling low: trading too much. Oh yeah. Yeah, e I see that a lot. There's people trying to get into the market, get out of the market. Uh, really difficult to to time that. Um, paying too much in fees. Well, that can happen. We just kind of talked about it 10 seconds ago when you mentioned um, you try and diversify yourself to the point um, that you're kind of actually more concentrated, and then you might end up paying a lot in heavy mutual fund yeah. fees just to own an index. So, there, yeah, there can be, yeah, that's pay pretty common. To the fees. I would say that's really common with a lot of accounts that I review. It's like you're paying a lot to own uh -huh. the same thing. So, yep. why? Yep. Um, or you could just go buy the stocks directly, but continue. Yeah, yeah. in some cases you can. Um, eight, focusing too much on taxes. Yeah, you got to, I mean, would you rather make 10% or save 1% in taxes? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, <laughs> and, and I think it's also, I would say, if, if you're so focused on the taxes that you stop focusing on the investments, mm -hmm. I think you got a problem there. You're taking your eye off the ball, right? Taxes right. matter, but they, they, don't, they shouldn't wag the dog. This is the person that steps over a $20 bill to pick up a penny. Yeah. Um, not regularly reviewing investments. Yeah, just the whole ignorance is bliss thing is fine until you realize that everything's screwed up yeah. and you should have been. I think that you should still be tracking and rebalancing because what you don't want to do is see your or, risks yeah. start to get out of whack because you're asleep at the switch. There you go. Um, 10, misunderstanding risk. Frankly, this whole show is about that. And yeah, go so, back and catch yeah, the podcast. Listen to the rest of the show. Get the podcast. Yeah. Um, and same with number 11, not knowing your performance. Well, so, don't be ignorant. Yep. <laughs> now, number 12, reacting okay. to the media. Oh, uh, we that, just spent the whole show. Ding, on this. ding, ding! Gold star. If you're yeah. the person that freaks out and wants to transfer your whole IRA to gold because you heard someone say that the economy's taken a yeah, <laughs> turn and I for just the worst, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> don't make radical, radical decisions unless you're like super convicted and you got to do it, or you're gonna yeah. just run off the rails. Don't make rash decisions. Yep. Thirteen. Forgetting about inflation. Just don't do it. Inflation eats away at your purchasing power. You have to well, and inflation changes the markets it where does. the risk-adjusted returns yeah. are part of, and uh, it's part of the formula for most stock mm -hmm. investors to uh, you know what exactly is your risk-free rate of return and what are you what are you getting for the risk you're taking? Yeah, um, we've already been over. Don't try to time the market. Fifteen, not doing due diligence. Right, if you mm -hmm. don't know what you're investing in, problem. Right, don't right. buy something blindly. Um, 16, working with the wrong advisor. Uh, it seems self-interested to talk well, about this, but it's pretty true. You get bad advice or no advice and you're paying for it, mm -hmm. think you're going the wrong direction and you should sort that out. I like it. 17, investing with emotions. That doesn't typically work out well. Nope. That's all I'll say on that one. I would say if you can invest the opposite of your emotions, you might do well. Mm -hmm. They did some great research at one point showing that sociopaths did a better job investing than regular people. 
because they tend to not view themselves as part of the risk equation, mm. right? They're, they're divorced from their emotions. And so they just kind of go do whatever is the highest probability thing every time. And they had more success than the investors that tend to do number 18, <laughs> chase yields, ah. right? Amongst other things. Yield chasing can be the worst. That is, of all the ones you've listed, I think that one has probably been the most destructive and dangerous one that I've witnessed. Yep. The person that chases the yield. Yeah, it, it's you're behind when when you're chasing yield. Uh, neglecting to start, that's simply you know waiting too long to okay. get started compounding. I revise what I said. That one's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> because if you take a bunch of risks and try and chase stuff with money, at least you have money. But if you never save anything, well, you're just hosed regardless. Yeah. Here's my favorite one, number 20, and we'll wrap up the list with this. Not controlling what you can. I mm. beat this drum all the time. I say when it comes to investing, what you want to do is try to get the highest probability of successful outcomes possible. And the way that you do that is by eliminating the maximum number of variables that you can. Most of this has to do with your own human behaviors. Mm -hmm. So if you can get rid of your mistakes, you improve the odds of being successful. So if someone heard that list and they're like, man, I'm guilty of... 60% of those, what should they do, David? <laughs> I would say, let's go back to uh, number 16. Work not with the wrong advisor, but find the right one. Oh, okay? man. Look at that plug and play. All right. So, look, um, as always, uh, we encourage you find someone that you both like and trust if you uh, need to get help with this stuff. If you don't have that person, we would be delighted to have a conversation. Give us a call, Matt. How do they reach us? Okay. Bust out that cell phone. It's 541 375 you can uh, find all, all kinds of stuff by going to littlejohnfs.com and you can get the story. Are but for now, we are out of time. Ah. So we got to run. Uh, until next time, thanks for tuning in. I'm Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.